I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We have to watch. would really appreciate it if you didn't mention the Kiev job anymore. Job. The audience Sorry, doesn't even know about the Kiev job. Hold on, job. I said I said that too loud and too clearly. Let me let me take that again. <laughs> you, know, you know about Kiev job? <laughs> Is this someone who received a blow to the throat and can't speak anymore? Tell the Kiev job. There, we're getting closer. Kiev job. You know that. How do they bloody know about the Kiev job? <laughs> anyway, I, I I don't know if the mix is purposely this low. I remember I had the same problem the last time I watched it, um, but the where I was watching it was was further away from my like other family's bedrooms who were asleep. Like I remember yeah. that distinctively. I turned this up extraordinarily loud, so when like action and music happens, it's like oh shit. Um, and this time it, that wasn't possible, so I just turned on subtitles. But uh, yeah, I I kind of forgot like. How much of this is hard to understand? Yeah, I put on I put on my headphones. This, I didn't put on subtitles um, because with British movies, I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm not I'm not I don't listen to I don't read subs. I just do dubs. Um, with British movies, yeah, I have a dub. What British movies American are you watching? English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like so yeah like so you're watching like fucking bridge on the river Kwai and instead of alec guinness being like what's all this then it's like <laughs> what is going on <laughs> it's actually um it's funny you you say it that way it's actually ross from friends dubbing over him <laughs> what is this I want you to build this bridge because we're enemies. We were on a break. <laughs> Could I be any more British? Now you're, now you're just confusing friends people. I know. The idea was that there's other friends people that dubbed over <laughs> more roles in the bridge in the river Kwai. Yeah. <laughs> Ross Geller. That's a name I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> Where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast, pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme. If you remember, we compare and contrast. We're in our third week of our uh, Spooktober spectacular on cults. Uh, uh, how, to, how to learn about them and get in them and, you know, use them to make friends and influence people. And... <laughs> Yeah, we're doing Ben Wheatley, our second Ben Wheatley movie, uh, Kill List, which uh, is a movie that a few years ago Peter said, Aaron, holy shit, this is one of my five favorite movies of all time. You need to watch it. And I said, Peter, I will get around to it. And I did at some point, and I liked it quite a bit. And uh, long story short, uh, we're doing it on the show. Yeah, that is that is correct. <coughs> uh, so, yeah, this is one of my, my favorite movies. Uh, it is... A indie horror project uh, directed by Ben Wheatley, who is uh, simultaneously like a beloved filmmaker, but is, I think, sort of becoming more divisive. Um, 
because he had this sort of like explosive announcement with yeah. uh, a group of, of lo- sort of low-key uh, British, uh, a comedy <laughs> crime movie called Down Terrace, uh, a very serious uh, horror crime drama called Kill List that we're going to be talking about today, and then um, Sightseers right after. And they were all received very well. Um, but after that, his career, I think, uh, it, he got some more acclaim. He became buddies with Scorsese. Um, after that, I think people started to get a little bit more mixed on him. But I'm still still firmly a, a, a Wheatley guy. So I, I haven't seen those other two movies. Um, a Field in England was, I think, the, the movie he did uh, after Sightseers. That was the first time I was aware of him before you, where people were like, this is something. Um uh, I don't know if I liked like it, it felt like it got some like notices on best of lists, but like in honorable mentions uh, stuff. And uh, and then he did a movie that you it was my first movie of his that I had seen that you were super excited of. It was like one of our first movies we ever did on this show. And it was a movie that ended up, I think, number 10 on my best of 2015 list. And that was High Rise, which I still love quite a bit. I watched it a couple times since. Uh, it really like f- fits that kind of like Brazil clockwork orange style that I uh, have you know loved because I'm an unoriginal white guy, but I you know I liked that kind of like odd British comedic dystopian of just everything falling apart. Uh, and definitely it's an would be interesting movie too. Like it's not Very easy to so. parse exactly what its themes are, which makes yeah. it like uh, kind of a little scamp of a movie. Yeah, but I I do feel like that one also got kind of middling reviews. I, I then he did Free Fire, which I liked quite a bit. Oh yeah, uh, but even if that's uh, I I don't think that's that's like a fun genre exercise um, as opposed to like I think a great movie. Um, and uh, yeah, I haven't seen his most recent stuff. It feels like uh, his his uh, what what is the one that in a world. No. Uh, in the Earth. Um, in the Earth. He made a pandemic movie where he was like, he and some friends, uh, they quarantined and then they, uh, with a very, very small crew, very safely in the middle of a pandemic, like went out to the woods and made some sort of uh, folk horror, cosmic horror experiment. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet because it's not like widely out by the time we're recording this. Uh, hoping to see it by the end of Spooktober, though. Yeah, I mean, this is coming out our third week in Spooktober. We're recording it a little early, so it's very possible that I have watched it by the time you're listening to this, because it is also on my Spooktober list. But I, I you know, um, after watching High Rise then Kill List in close succession, I did mean to get back and watch Down Terrace and uh, Sightseers in a Field in England, and I haven't, to my shame, yet. Um, but um, I, you know, I think Kill List is a movie that... I don't, like, it is a, like, I really like it. Uh, like, I think I have, we had four and a half stars on Letterboxd. I can't wait to talk about it. It was an easy pick for this month. I'm a little bit curious, though, Peter, like, when you're talking, like, top five favorite movies of all time, it's kind of a rare breed. And I am curious what, what takes this from, like, my perception of a great four and a half five star movie and literally puts it into 
uh, into one of your top five favorite of all time blocks. Some of it is just uh, sort of the spooky magic of movies. Like there's every um, you see a movie that speaks to your soul in a way. And while I can parse out um, some of the aesthetic choices and some of the sort of setting choices is, is very much speaking to me. Um, I think tonight is going to be sort of exploring some of that because um, this is one of those movies that uh pretty much from the moment it opens with a uh, sort of rune symbol being carved uh, into the center of the frame. And then it says the title of the movie, Kill List. Uh, I am just like, it's under my skin in a way that like Interesting. good film should be. Like the just the aesthetic choices that it makes right off the bat um, get under my skin in a way that like uh, I, I can't totally rationally talk about, which I think makes it a perfect pick for a month where we're talking about cults, the occult, uh, forces that are bigger than us. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I, I, It is definitely unnerving in a lot of different parts, and the way it holds its kind of mystery is very close to the chest, in some ways not giving away anything ever. It's a little different than some of the other movies we're doing this month that, you know... We- we talked a lot about on our episode, The Invitation, about like one of the things we liked is this idea of getting in and seeing how the cult operates it a little closer. This this one is like in some ways we are seeing it from the beginning because the, the our two main characters uh, are operating within the bounds of that cult in a way they don't quite understand for theoretically their entire career since they left the army and became like hitmen for hire. Uh, that they were literally central to a portion of where the cult was headed, and um, they just they just don't realize it for uh, essentially the entirety of the movie. Even as the clues get more and more obvious that something is off, that I mean, the the movie very quickly lets you know this is a cult movie. I mean, the, the, again, the scrawling symbol at the beginning uh, tips that away, but there's other clues that let you know that. Uh, pretty directly that there's something pretty big going on around these guys as they're just essentially doing their day jobs and worrying about their, you know, finances and marital situations and, you know, if they are going to find love and settle down for some of them and all, all you know, how, what it's like being a, a friends with someone for a long time and working with them and well, on the on the um, well, basically every interaction then around their own internal drama is like this fucking weird like cult thing that we're paying attention to as an audience, but the characters aren't as much as they should be. Yeah, the characters are trying to sort of drown um, uh, drown their curiosity uh, in the call from the job, and even and then when they try to get out of the job, uh, they are driven back in. Um, so they're they 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 smartly um, in the two thirds mark of this movie, they smartly determine uh, let's get the fuck out of here, uh, but the cult does not allow them to and what's fun about this movie is um so yeah director ben wheatley british director did some uh bbc3 bbc4 uh work he did some commercial work um he worked with uh the two lead stars neil maskell and uh, Mayanna Buring. Uh, he worked with them on a bbc comedy show um and then uh he did down terrace uh with uh some of his, his other sort of bbc comedy friends um which is very much like a silly 
uh, a silly sort of uh, story about like the ineptitude of these British criminals, this like fading British criminal family um, who doesn't seem all that committed to the job. And then the last act is where it reminds you that like, yes, these these criminals are, are dangerous people. Um, it's a very, very interesting movie. Um, it's sort of in a Cohen-esque way. Uh, goes from silly ineptitude to to uh, violence. Um, this movie came out of, yeah, trying to work with Neil Maskell and Mayanna Burring. And then he also brought along Michael Smiley and some other folks um, that... Uh, he met through the BBC and Michael Smiley, um, you, I, I'm sure you could recognize from like Edgar Wright movies and lots of yeah, he's in, I mean, of comedy shows. Yeah, I was surprised to see this. He's in every British movie. Yeah, every last one. Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he's in he's in all the David Lean productions as a baby with the same same face, <laughs> just on a smaller body. And he's sort of a lovable. He's sort of a lovable actor. He's very charismatic and sweet, and he has this sort of a, like uh, avuncular affability. Um, and and they really use that to Ben Wheatley really uses that to great uh, effect in in this movie. Uh, and his wife uh, actually co-writes his movies with him, which is something that I didn't know until very recently. Uh, her name is Amy Jump. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know until I. Uh, read the imdb trivia as part of our uh, intense research that we do um the i did you see the imdb trivia for this it's it's nothing like no other imdb trivia i've ever seen in my life no i didn't i didn't uh oh, I didn't oh you didn't do your research got it um <laughs> uh it's all trivia from the commentary track with him and his wife talking about the movie oh like 30 entries so it is definitely like sourced well um, but it leads to a lot of things of like, uh, uh, his, uh, his wife, Amy being like, I really, as I've told you before, like, I didn't like that you started with the cult drawing. I think it, you know, ruins some of the surprise later in the movie. <laughs> and apparently, apparently then like Ben being like, well, as I told you then, I disagree with that. <laughs> so yeah. it has like a lot of those, those moments of, you know, that, cause that is an interesting pairing, you know, uh, how many movies have been fucking made about screenwriters who have their movies changed by a director? Um, and so clearly, uh, uh, there is a little bit of that dynamic, even in a, uh, writing, uh, partnership that is also a like domestic partnership. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he he says even on the the DVD interviews, he's like, oh, it's a very stormy process while we're writing together. Um, what's going to happen? But he says once we get into production and particularly post production, uh, Amy and I we we very much are, are are singing. So I guess that's how their relationship works. Um, yeah, is that while they're writing, they're just like at each other's throats, and then when the time comes to actually put the movie together they're you know they're, they're clicking yeah and then i guess when the dvd commentary they record all the <laughs> the fights stretch back up uh yeah it's you know one of the things that i like even though i've only seen three of his movies like just reading uh you know the descriptions of down terrorists or sightseers it's so interesting like of someone who has such a specific visual style who works pretty seamlessly within genres like free fire is this great action genre exercise that's like almost all style uh obviously michael smiley's in that movie as well and is really good in it um which is so different from something like this or high rise like high rise has like the big terry gilliam style and this really feels like a movie and i this this is going to sound um 
insulting, but I don't mean it that way. This feels like the type of movie that you found by a director who made one movie um, for like Gramercy Pictures in 1998 that was like uh, like one of those like crime dramas that you discover and tell all your friends at the video store about because it never got a release anywhere. Like that's kind of the style of this movie, and you feel that in some of the. Uh, the the way that it's kind of a little bit like like we talked about jokingly at the beginning a little hard to understand um, and it's just shot uh, I don't, is it shot on video no it's 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 shot on it's shot on film uh, by a cinematographer named uh, Lori Rose um, but the the um, the aesthetic is like mini DV two thousand three video yeah but it's it's it also is very beautiful but it's like, yeah it very much is um, shot from a sort of indie era perspective so yeah. it, it lends a, a great deal of intimacy so it's a lot of like you know um, the backgrounds being unfocused but the foregrounds being very much in focused and light sources getting uh, sort of blown out or turned into uh, you know like glistening cubes and while that's that's not uh, particularly original um, the way that it's shot has an effect on me similar to when I'm watching The Shining The Shining is famously a very like stoic strong camera movement right there's nothing handheld or, or indie about it um, but like it has a similar effect on me where when the camera is moving, uh, I feel like it's like entering a, 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 a darker space in my mind. Uh, it feels yeah. very natural and you, you kind of don't even know, even though it's a movie that's like heavily edited, like mm-hmm. the editing is very specific and there's like voiceover over montages, um, you don't actually yeah, like, it's good. that's why like it reminds me a little bit of like. It reminds me a little bit of like uh, the limey or something like that. Yeah, yeah. There's there's an impressionism to the, yeah. how the editing works where it feels sort of dreamy. Um, yeah. So it really does. It really does get. Like I've said it poor, but it really does get under my skin. And- well, and much like much like The Shining, you know, as we all know, famously um, was Kubrick's confession to having faked the moon landing. Kill List is Wheatley's confession to having been the person who actually killed JFK. Oh yeah, um, that's true. That's true. So there's there's some bookends there as well by way of like why probably both get under your skin and that one was a confession that the space race and our triumph over the USSR was a lie. Uh, and this is about how uh, Ben Wheatley as a child was on the grassy knoll uh, murdering John F. Kennedy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that JFK – he he was asking for it, frankly, and uh, Ben Whitley said, "That's enough, then." <laughs> oh, what's all this then? <laughs> you don't have a top for your car. You'll pay the ultimate price. <laughs> <laughs> no top for your car. No top for your head, mate. <laughs> That's how it works in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about. Um, yeah, the approach to the movie and then get a little bit in the background of it and then we'll – I think we need to just jump into the cult so we can get going. Um, the, the 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 British accents – the first time I watched this, I watched this with Ryan Bolin. We were in college together and I was like, this movie is getting like rave reviews. We need to check it out. It's a horror movie. It's a British horror movie. It, I You know, I like Michael Smiley because at the time I was more familiar with him as like an Edgar Wright player or like uh, him from like British sitcoms I had seen. And uh, when we were watching it, we kept just cranking up the volume because 
we couldn't understand it. it. It has a very naturalistic performance quality where sometimes people are just talking very low and very quiet. Because Ben Wheatley is so focused on visuals and is not an exposition guy. So another piece of background here. He actually wrote a version of the script with way, way more sort of uh, side exposition and explanations just sort of for producers and stuff to understand and for him to, and, and, and Amy to sort of understand. Then by the time it, it was time to pass the script out to cast members, <laughs> he cut that all that shit out and he just gave them kind of like a stripped down version of the script. Then when it got to editing, he cut even more of the exposition out. So he's sort of like, you know, you can say like, oh, to, like, oh, it's like Christopher Nolan and his sound editor who like he can't seem to get rid of because like, but like Tenet is nothing but exposition. And so that sound editing quality is like a big fucking deal. In this movie, you're... You're watching the performances in a very intimate, close distance. The performances are very naturalistic and very sort of like you're, you're very much focused on people's like faces and expressions. Um, the the some of the and some of the, the the moments are quite chaotic and yelling. The first 25 minutes of the movie is basically a domestic drama um, before yeah. he goes and does hitman shit. And um, the the because of that, like. Yeah, like it's it's a weird it's a, a, a has a weird sort of indie movie quality. But on the flip side of that, um, it doesn't fucking matter because you always know what they're you're, you always know what the intent of the moment is. Right. Like this is something that yeah. no one talks about in interviews, but it doesn't actually work because his movies are so fucking exposition heavy. Yeah, they, I mean, they do have British accents like, you know, I'm not trying to if anything, I'm just outing myself as one of those nerdy uh stereotypes of like i watched so much monty python and other stuff in junior high like british accents even like the snatched level ones have has never been like confusing to me the, the issue here is the volume and i that's why it almost feels like it has to be like a stylistic choice because yeah. i just don't understand why the voices are so low in the mix i, I don't know if it's I mean, I could, like, potentially guess, like, if it is a stylistic choice, it has something to do with that feeling that, you know, they are just theoretically, like, quiet people living their lives. And, like, the the reason why it is a it is a mix issue and not like, oh, just turn up the volume on the whole movie, dum-dums. Like, the, 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 the crashes and the bangs and the, you know, gunshots and the screams are all, like, super loud in the mix. And I, 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 I imagine that's... Like I said, somewhat intentional. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's intentional. And what's kind of funny is like you compare this era of Down Terrace, Sightseers. I know you haven't seen those ones, but you should definitely – I mean, Down Terrace is okay. It's a, it's a fun little you know uh, genre exercise. You should definitely see Sightseers because it's fucking hilarious. Sightseers down uh, uh, in this – down Terrace all have sort of a naturalistic quality. I imagine in the Earth kind of has this too, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, all of a naturalistic quality to the performances and the editing is sort of dreamy and, and you know washes over you like a wave. Free Fire and High Rise absolutely are not that. No, glossy. Uh, the performances are big and expressionistic. Um, and they're very, uh, they're very clear and like the sound mixing kind of matches that because it wouldn't make sense. It's, it's like, that's the same fucking thing that I've just brought up about Christopher Nolan, the tenant. Like you made a big glossy action movie. Let me hear what you're saying. Um, if you, you know, if you, maybe in following you're allowed to do that or in memento, you're allowed to do that, but not in, you know, this kind of movie. Uh, 
And so it's kind of fun because his career has like, he's kind of done both sides. He's done more of a mainstream style approach, like, you know, Free Fire and High Rise are chock full of jokes and, and, uh, and those sort of performances. Whereas like he started his career making indie dramas where characters kind of talk low and they have quiet conversations that are very, very important. They're not yelling, you know, they're not screaming. Um, the soundtrack doesn't swing up whenever a line comes up. That's, that's really impactful. Um, it, it, it has a very, like, I understand his domestic life and I'm, I'm synced into his kind of horrible domestic life in about 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely, uh, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about this movie that we'll get into details, like, as I said, like, this is a movie about Hitman and as as the character's jobs and all these, like, cultish, end of the world, antichrist, you know, we, we don't know the extent necessarily that cults are rarely trying to execute a plan that ends well for people. So something in, in that milieu, they are like a lot of us heads down, focused on interpersonal relationships, romantic relationships, child rearing, bills to pay, <laughs> declined credit cards, <laughs> embarrassing situations and stuff like that, that like that is where their focus is for the majority of the movie until these moments kind of break through their, you know, their kind of like um, middle, middle, midlife crisis uh, ennui and like kind of shakes them out of it. Like when they see the video of unspeakable acts or like those little call outs of like, hey, by the way, thanks for doing this, man. Like, it's like, wait, what? Doing what? <laughs> you know, like that, that where, where they finally kind of are out of their own heads, which is, you know, such a, a realistic thing. Like, you know, even more so, you know, it's hard not to mention what, you know, what the last 18 months have been life, but like, you like, you still, you know, navigating like, you know, a global pandemic. You also are like, Worried about domestic stuff and, oh, are we spending too much money on this? Like, all of the all of the normal things that you need to deal with um, as you, like, run a household and a family and pay bills and everything else. Like, there's not really anything that can break through that for the most part, um, even like a global pandemic. So, yeah, they are being, uh, you know, taking steps towards being – part of this cultist ritual and have jobs where they murder people for money. But, you know, it's still fucking embarrassing if you can't get your hotel room reservation because the credit cards declined. Yeah, yeah. So this is actually sort of a, a nice uh, uh, growth from Down Terrace where like Down Terrace was specifically like a comedy sort of making fun of criminals and how like a lot of their, uh, their everyday behavior and their life is actually like <laughs> – full of indignities um and it, it's full of trials and like that they're not living this sort of like glamorous gangster lifestyle and also he was like you watch these sad french movies about hitmen and they have glorious suits on and they're, they they go back to their quiet state apartments and they have you know moments of reflection or you know in in, in the 60s there were lots of movies about hitmen or like golgo 13 and in japan even that would be like about how glamorous they were how they go they do their assassination they they punch out a guy and then they get the girl and he was like specifically he was like that's not a dramatic concept like the real drama is that these are just like 
guys who served in the military at some point then when they got out they had a specific skill set somebody found a way to weaponize that skill set and it turned them into sort of these hollow husks of men with drinking problems bad marriages bad relationships and who kind of both resent the job but also don't know who they are outside the job and that makes for a great basis for a movie because we get 25 minutes in this movie we've seen like one spooky thing which is uh the the um um, what's her name sophie uh gil's girlfriend uh yeah she carves this uh this this it's not a pentagram but it's sort of a, a a rune symbol uh behind the mirror in uh, the lead character's house. Uh, other than that, the first 25 minutes is largely just like, well, we went, we're, we're going to go get the job. And then they go to the job. And then the rest of the movie is like <laughs> unpacking that, how that domestic strife has affected their relationship and how that domestic strife is, is, um, is informing where these characters brains are at. Yeah. And it has all the like trappings of that, right? Like, you know, it's it's the marriage where they're in love, but they just, you know, they're not getting along. There's a kid that needs to be raised. This, as far as I know, has not existed in real life, but it happens in movies a lot where it's like the the friend of one of the spouses also is really close friends with the spouse and then like starts to be like a ear to cry on in their relationship. Yeah, he's the, he's their therapist, the uncle, and they're like yeah. they're like middleman. They're like negotiator, um, and he's like really good with their kid. Like you see yeah. just as much time with Gil, who's played by Michael Smiley. Um, you see just as much time with him playing with the kid as you do with our lead character. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of times he's there as they have like seemingly expected marital squabbles like this sort of shit happens all the time where they're trying to have a nice dinner and then they start like making a scene and throwing things at each other that like he's like okay well this is my job where i take the kid and put him back to bed while they kind of wrap up and cool down and like he knows like that's their cool down process because like the the night's not ruined right he's like we just gotta wait this out let him chill out you know and then you know you put the two Put the two ends back together and then everything's back to normal, which, you know, not healthy, but he's clearly very lived into their relationship uh, in that he like kind of knows all the ups and downs and how to navigate not on the side, but like through them. Like he's he's part of the little dance that they do. Yeah, that's a really good observation. But yeah, I think we should talk a little bit about how this movie has that sort of dance they're doing. You know, you're right. The night kind of rebounds on itself <clears throat> because of of Gil's sort of uh, stepping in um, and very sweetly uh, hanging with the boy. Um, where he's like making jokes at the boy and being like, "Oh, they're just they're just drunk. Don't ever drink, okay?" Like he's making little little jokes to the kid. Yeah, he's, and he's like, I mean, he is giving a good like metaphor that you know, like you have friends, right? Like you fight with your friends, right? Well, mommy and daddy are best friends. Yeah, <laughs> like they fight sometimes. Yeah, it's it's actually a very sweet, intimate scene in a movie. Yeah. And there's the movie has good black humor, but it also has a few moments of like genuine sweet sincerity that I think um helps it helps at least act as a little bit of a bulwark against the the just like onco <laughs> I mean, oncoming wave of nihilism. To be clear, I actually think any sweetness and like humanizing makes it worse. 
Oh yeah, that's true. That's true because there's a because it makes uh, saying goodbye to these people harder. Um, I think, but I think that's the thing about this movie is like I don't necessarily empathize with uh, Jay, our protagonist. I think he had, had, you know, I feel very bad for anybody that has entered the military and then um, just gotten rocked by PTSD and then doesn't know how to go forward other than to continue to engage with the system that traumatize them I, I like i have some empathy for him on sort of a macro level in a, in a specific level like him yelling at his wife and having a freak out at the dinner table and like him yelling at his wife in front of their kid like in him refusing to refusing to find a way out of this lifestyle um like taking off all work for eight months um as opposed to finding something anything that he can get the fuck out of the house for and he's not a very attentive father it sounds like shell is is a stay-at-home mother who also just like she, when he's home he's he's checked out with the kid except for a few play times like i don't have a whole lot of sympathy or empathy for him but i do have pity and that's something that like a breakthrough i had with this movie is like i don't i have i have like empathy for shell and i have empathy for gill and that helps you know uh, guide things. I don't actually have to empathize with my lead characters if I have a considerable well of pity for them. And I mean that in like a human level, like, 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 oh man, you are just stuck in it. You are a, you're an animal with their leg in a trap. Like, I feel so, like, I feel sorry for you on that level. Um, and I think that Jay, the, the Neil Maskell, uh, pulls off an expert performance here at being a, a believable version of a man who's like, haunted before cults even entered the scene yeah i mean and and like a lot of good movies they don't really spell out the the why he's haunted right like yeah because harry dean stanton's character it sounds like harry dean stanton's character fucked over snake plissken um in 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 pittsburgh or, or some you know major american rust belt city uh, that is 100% what I'm thinking of, is the Escape from New York line that they keep referencing that no one ever explains. Um, but yeah, that's – I mean, I love that they keep doing that, except this is like clearly a absolute brutal thing that occurred because, um, you know, it is uh, it is causing it is causing everyone to like wonder if he's ever going to get over it. It's like clearly some sort of – yeah, like um, – it's something that was so impactful that they've run out of money. He refuses to work. Gil is there specifically to try to talk him back into the mix. And it is it is something that like, you know, he he feels like he's probably there's there's a there's a uh opening scene where like he's he kinda they're playing uh with the with with their the kid and the and the wife and like poking him with the sword, which ends up being a foreshadowing scene for something we're gonna talk about later. But it also is like this moment where it feels like this may be the first time that he's kind of played around with his kid in a long time because everyone's like really happy that he's participating and being goofy as if like, you know, the he, he's he's definitely undergone some trauma from whatever happened, which I think also as we see how uh, the movie progresses, like it must have been significant trauma, right? Because he kills people pretty nonchalantly. Like, he seems unbothered, nonplussed by killing people. The only time he gets plussed is by watching that video of, again, something they don't explain to us viewers, but I mean... Presumably some combo of snuff and kitty porn. Yeah, yeah, that would... I mean, that's... Because I guess he does says those were children, right? Yeah. 
But yeah, that's a scene where they don't even show you a single frame of what's happening, but you just get to hear screams really low in the mix. And like, it very much sounds like children's voices. And it's like, that's where that sort of naturalistic abstraction is like very good because it lets our brains fill in the subtlety, um, which is uh, uh, why this movie, uh, when it gets to this, there's uh, it's structured around three targets and then there's a bonus fourth target. Um, it's structured around three targets with title cards and everything. The first target goes smooth. Second target goes off the fucking rails. And then the third target, um, also goes even further off the rails, um, with, um, with Jay's, uh, brain deteriorating more and more as, as, as it goes. And, um, the movie very wisely has like clean kills to sort of let you enter into the movie and then when we get to uh the second the second uh kill the uh the librarian um there's just an on-screen brutal murder that's one of the most brutal murders i've ever seen in a movie but yeah it's probably the most violent thing in the movie is just like stuck in the middle of the movie and it lends this unpredictability to the whole thing where like it's 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 been sort of subtle and 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 um very naturalistic to that point, and then that's the point where it's like, well, we have a, there's a little cannibal Holocaust DNA in here, or something, a little hostile DNA in here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. That that sort of Kiev incident is referenced also in a, in a very similar way, which is that like because we don't see a frame of it and we don't hear any of the explanation for it in our minds, like it's like. Oh man, I don't know. Were there like a bunch of children immolated? Like what fucking happened? There, when they find someone who has a file on them and all the Kiev situation, that's when they're like, "We're out." Like apparently, people knowing what happened is um, it's so concerning that they're willing to like you know break a blood pact with a consortium of assassins, uh, which seems like a big deal. Uh, yes, yes. It's it, and then they find out that that uh, that ultra powerful Illuminati um, that has hired them for this job and things have only gotten stranger from there. That they were probably uh, some part of the orchestration in Kiev. Um, so maybe we want to leave it at that and then yeah, let's talk about kill list. Let's talk more about uh, uh, kill list. Hey Aaron, yeah, your kill. It's on my list. Because your kill, your kill, is on my list. Your kill is on my list. As the worst things in life. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> not one of the best. <laughs> I don't want another Kiev here. All right. <laughs> no, because it's Spooktober, um, I think it'd be fun to tell this as if it's a spooky story with a big spooky oh. twist ending, and then we can dive back into the movie. Do you want to turn the lights down? Everyone, turn their lights down. Yeah, if you're driving at night, turn your headlights off. Turn them down, dim them at least. <laughs> um, if you are performing surgery right now, Hold turn the lights down. If you're making love, turn the lights up a little bit. A little bit. Don't be afraid of your body. It's beautiful. Yeah. Also, thank you for fucking while listening to We Love to Watch. Yeah, should we should we be, offer words of encouragement? Have we have we said that canonically the only way to listen to this is while fucking? <laughs> yes. When I um, it's really inconvenient for my wife when I'm editing. Yeah. I'm like because I I'm saying like that's 
I can't break from canon. I'm one of the hosts. I'm not fan fiction. So, unfortunately, we have to have sex with each other for the entire, you know, 30 hours it takes me to edit this week. <laughs> wow. Wow. Very sting of you. Uh, well, you know, I try to – that's why my episodes are perfect, so I can have sex longer. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone loves to have sex for three hours, the typical length of our episodes. <laughs> so, I'm going to tell everyone a spooky story about a soldier who came home from war. So, get everyone get in your mood. Uh, there once was a soldier who came home from war. He and his friend, they saw some very horrifying things. One of them had no family, but one of them named Jay had a family. He loved his wife and his child both very much. One day, uh, his friend from war brings him a contract for a new job. And this is uh, very hard for him because he doesn't, he, he saw a lot of bad things at war. He doesn't want to go back. But this time he says, it's right in country. It's just three targets, three people you have to slay. And then you get to get some money and go back to your domestic life. And maybe things will be better when that's done. So they go, they meet with the, the man who's hiring them out for the contract. And when he's uh, not paying attention, the man slices his hand and performs a blood oath over a piece of paper. And then the man slices his own hand and the oath is sealed. Um, they, they, they brush it off. It's just a weird thing. They say, you know, sometimes clients are weird. Sometimes they're just trying to scare you. That's, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. But this man had very unnerving energy. So they kind of can't keep him out of their mind. The first person they have to kill is a priest, a Roman Catholic priest. This causes a great deal of uh, consternation for his friend Gil, uh, who's an Irish Catholic. So Jay agrees to take on that target. And it goes perfectly, um, except for one weird thing. The priest turned around and thanked him for killing him. And it's done very cleanly. They get rid of the body. They move to the next target, otherwise known as the librarian. The librarian operates a, uh, a, a, a lockup, a storage uh, unit, uh, as they're following him around, trying to find a good time to kill him. And so they break into the storage unit and they find snuff. This incenses Jay, uh, who's a family man, and it also makes, uh, it makes Gil pretty pissed too. Um, so they go and they grab this guy pretty messily right off his, his doorstep, drag him into his house, and they start torturing him. This crime that this librarian has committed is so horrifying that Jay takes his hammer and smashes the guy's head in uh, against the kitchen table. And Gil, who is starting to see the cracks sort of in his, his friend's, uh, his friend's uh, you know, usually icy exterior, um, he's starting to see the cracks, tells him, you know, this is unprofessional. This is not what's supposed to happen. Like, this is a big fucking mess. We didn't even put down our plastic tarps. Um, let's get... <laughs> Let's get our heads straight. Because of this, after they clean everything up, um, Jay is still incensed. And he, during his, his uh, torture of the librarian, he got the name of who was uh, one of his accomplices in making the film. So they go to the, uh, the accomplice's house um, in this, this dingy little warehouse they, he, uh, Jay goes in, goes, goes rogue, and he goes and he kills uh, the man's dog and then beats the man to death. And then they have to clean up that bloody mess. And things are just going off the rails. So they're two sacrifices down out of three. But Gil wants out of this. He thinks, you know, we got paid for the first two. Maybe we can bail out on the third one. We have, we have contacts. We can have someone pick up the contract. 
So they go and meet with yeah, and you know, not to interrupt the story because they're telling beautifully, but I think you know his his line that he says when they want to quit is pretty pretty important, which is well, we'll go home in it. <laughs> it's a bit shy killing people like this. It's a bit she was shy. Just just maybe you know head off to the loo. It's a bit rubbish. Never come back. But I'm gonna go to the loo. Maybe don't cut my hand on the way out. <laughs> Bollocks. It would be bollocks if you hit me. It'd be bollocks if you murdered me and my children. <laughs> just, just rubbish. Oh, oh! Well, the queen mother would not approve. <laughs> Man, British people—they are something. They are something. They talk like that all day. If you heard anything that we said, please turn down your volume and rewind. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think? That when we're not around, British people just talk normal. Oh, right. Everyone gone. <laughs> Let's watch some American football. How long do we have to keep this up? Like, I know it was like our petty thing when they beat us in that war. But, like, it's exhausting. And also, like, I don't know how to tell you this. Like, from from looks, hard to tell who's American and who's British. And yeah. as as you know, if we fuck it up, we have to kill them. Yeah, yeah, because you think like, oh, that person's really pasty. They could just be from Seattle. They could just be me. We've all been inside for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> they they go to meet with their con their contractor, and he uh, he says. Um, I'm not digging out your basement. Um, they go and meet with their, uh, the what do you call the contractee? The man who puts out the contract. Um, they go and meet with their, their benefactor, the man who their hired handler. them. Their handler. Their handler. Yeah, yeah, the client. Yeah. Uh, and there's... And of course, um, you know, where this guy grew up was in Chelsea. So he's a Chelsea handler. Thank you. Chelsea's a town in Britain, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's an area of London, maybe. Great. Well, I think then it works even better. Yeah, I mostly I mostly know London from gangster movies. So there's something called a Chelsea Smile. Do you know what that is? Uh, yeah. It's with the Joker. It's when you're has. dead. I hope you guys still have fingernails because you've been gnawing on them the whole time. So um, they go and they meet in this this dark hotel room, and the handler is pale, creepy guy sitting there and he has other people now are just kind of silently watching this exchange and they say if you try and bail out of this contract we'll kill you we'll kill your family we'll kill whoever it takes to make you suffer um and so they have to go do the third contract but they're they're like it's it's a it's a mp it's like a, a, a member of parliament it's like a big job um, but they don't have any particular guilt about it. It's just that they, they don't want any more of this crazy business. And Jay doesn't think that, sorry, uh, Gil doesn't think that Jay is up to the job anymore. And he wants to, he thinks like this is, this might draw him over an irreparable line in the sand for his sanity. And he's right. So, uh, they take him for the third, the third target, the MP. Um, and after camping and, uh, sort of hiking through the woods they come upon this ceremony this ritual ceremony um involving a bonfire and masked naked people some of them are robed but a lot of them are naked and they're all wearing straw masks um that are sort of you know vertical and pointed that you would recognize if you've seen full core before 
um, very spooky. They're standing out in the shadows, glistening in the in the light of the bonfire. And something comes over Jay, and, and after uh, they watch a woman step up on a stool, put a noose around her neck, and voluntarily kill herself, and they all start politely golf clapping on this <laughs> on this yeah. massive beautiful estate do i mean it feels unnerving because they're golf clapping but for britain people that's actually rowdy applause <laughs> they're such a polite people that that they don't know how to to whoop whoop uh, <laughs> yeah. good show old chap <laughs> that's oh well so that would be like if the queen break dance they would say good show old chap what do you think they say like good show chap chappy is what they call chappy yeah they say good show chappy <laughs> Bloody hell, Chappie! You blew, I mean, you blew the fucking balls off, Chappie! <laughs> In fairness, I haven't seen Chappie. Um, Have you seen Chappie 2? What's Chappinin'? <laughs> but my guess is, considering that that was shot in South Africa where they have British accents. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's probably what it sounded like, Peter. Yeah, that's... Um, that Come here, Chappie! Come here, Chappie! You bloody tosser! <laughs> oh, look at him! We got all these shoddy boys! Mm-hmm. Um, were you in Chappie? Meets Robo. Yeah. Oh. I played the titular Chappie. I was pointed at by many ironic boyfriends <laughs> in <laughs> the movie theater. Um, how'd you do the voice acting? Do you have a microwave? Well, like this. Beep boop. You did it vocally? I, I haven't seen Chappie. I don't think I've ever seen a preview of Chappie. <laughs> So yeah, this this cult group is is just throwing sacrifices out left and right. Uh, Jay just loses it watching this woman consciously hang herself, and he opens fire with a big assault rifle at the at the group. Um, one of them just and one of them when they start being fired upon just stands openly in the group and leaves his chest open to get to get shot at and the rest of them start charging most of them naked with knives with these these straw face masks that you can't even see their expression under um and so they are all charging jay and gill back down the way they came which they came through a series of tunnels through these woods they're holding them off for a while with high firepower these people are just throwing themselves fish in a barrel down this this hallway everything is lit by flashlights they they can't see very far the noises the echoes are throwing them off jay kind of panics and runs further down the the alley and doesn't hold uh gill's back gill runs out of shells because he's shooting so many of them down and one of them in the dark jumps him stabs him disembowels him He's able to kill the cultist before he's able to kill him. Jay runs back to finally help his friend, and his he sees his intestines are everywhere. Gil begs for his life, uh, begs for him to put him down, um, put him out of his misery. Um, and he says, thank you, and he shoots him. Yeah. Now Jay is he's, he's out, out, out in the wild. He's, he's, he's lost everything. He's panicking. He's freaking out. He goes back home because he doesn't know what else to do. And now that the three contracts are complete, the cultists aren't just going to give him a stack of money and go. They've come to they come to collect something. So they're outside his house in the dark. They're stalking him. He moves out into the woods with his rifle to go hunt them. While his wife, who is a trained uh, military um, operative uh, as well, she defends the house, uh, defends their child for a period of time. Um, And then we see Jay get knocked out. 
uh, in the woods. The cult has not just captured him, but has taken his shirt off. They hand him a mask and he's standing in a circle uh, surrounded and flanked by the people who hired him, by Fiona, by, um, you know, various cultists wearing masks. And they uh, form a circle with him and a title card comes up, uh, the hunchback. And so a, a, a hunched over figure with a with a hunched figure um, who's just moaning and making strange noises and has a mask on. He can't make make out the face and also has a knife. Um, he uses his, his training from the military. He comes in. He slashes at the stomach. He slashes at the back. He slashes at the head. He the, the hunchback falls down dying and people start golf clapping. Uh, the mask comes off on the hunchback and he sees that it wasn't a hunchback. It was his wife with... His son taped uh, uh, affixed to the back, and they were sort of gagged. And his wife starts laughing at this at this exchange. Everyone is celebrating Jay for having not just completed his mission, but for slaughtering his family in a sort of final sacrifice. And at this point, we don't know what the cult's intentions are. We don't know. We don't know what they, why they put him through this. Why drag somebody through such an, in, with such sacrifices, such massive sacrifices? Why would they drag yeah. him through this? But they managed to make the final target his own family. The end. Yeah, very uh, stark, immediate ending. Like once you realize what the what the hunchback is, like the real, like you know, that's that's have kids, don't have kids. The because he like stabs that back like twenty times, and like the the realization right before credits slam that oh he he is processing the fact that he just killed his uh, his son. Yeah, yeah, he killed his son. He killed his 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 wife. One one of the rumors too, which I guess was uh, cleared up in the commentary, that like, because the laughing is open to interpretation. But one of the common theories is that she's involved in it, and Ben Wheatley said in the commentary that it's absolutely not true. She's just sort of reacting in horror to the situation because she also, when she was the hunchback, she's swinging at him because she didn't know that it was. Jay. She didn't know what was going on. Yeah, yeah. we don't even know if she knew that her son was on her back. Yeah, yeah, right? she was she was knocked out off screen. Yeah, so um, we don't we, we we don't even know that she's not you know safe at the house and that it's not just Jay in danger at this point. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about this, and the, the reason I, I didn't notice this the first time, so I'm going to spoil Possessor for the next few minutes. So t- fast forward. Yeah, fast forward really about quick. two minutes. Say five minutes. Yeah, five minutes. We'll five ourselves. Minutes. Five minutes. Uh, so at 10.44 on my clock, I'm going to stop talking about Possessor. So you can comfortably go ahead exactly five minutes. Um, so one of the things that the ending really um, conjures up is this idea of – because they are celebrating him. And you realize uh, throughout the entire movie that like it's so centered on the familial drama portion – of of his life and how like that really wears and tears on him right like the having to maintain a relationship with his son having to maintain this friendship having to maintain his wife and their relationship is a challenging thing oh well, he's also gone for like three months at a time they say yeah like that's a hard thing to do for a lot of reasons right he clearly has ptsd from his his war years as most people would um he clearly has a measure of, you know, 
His job is to go out and kill people that they give him a name and he kills them. And uh, we also know that he's suffering some severe trauma from a trip to Kiev that like basically made him just like completely maybe not have a uh, like a severe depressive long term episode. Right. And then even as he's trying to kind of get back into the game. And he's trying to, like, get back into these old habits that he's, like, because, he, you know, at first he's kind of finding his rhythm with the priests. You know, they do all their stuff with the putting on the tarps and they're doing all this uh, and, you know, they're checking into hotels. And, and every step of the way, that kind of world is intruded by the financial and marital and familial strife that he's going into with his family. So, you know, the first time I saw this, there's just an element of, of horror that I'm seeing on screen. Um this time, I I almost feel like, again, I, I don't think he's happy that those people are dead. But seeing it in such close succession with Possessor, which, spoiler for, for again, for Possessor, is about a assassin who basically has the same thing. Has a, has a kid, has a husband, and, uh, you know, the, the assassin group wants her to get uh, – the leader of that assassin group, uh, played by Jennifer Jason Leigh, is like – just you could be so great just being an assassin. These like familial relationships are stressing you out or dragging you down. And the climax of that movie is like her finding a way to use her job to have her family killed um, with, you know, not like um, with a, a supporting player of this other person who's helped her get there. And there is an element of almost like happiness that finally – um, I've been able to like free myself from these familial bonds that's keeping me from doing my 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 job well. And so now seeing Killis with that like image, there's you know we never even like we see him shocked and surprised. But I think you could make an interpretation that regardless of the cult's motives, that um, they they've they've weirdly saved him from everything that's been stressing him out this entire movie. Yeah, he's weirdly, like, purified and now his, like, his his murderous uh, tendencies are no longer this sort of ignominious job for money. Um, they have elevated him to some sort of, we can presume some sort of messianic status because, yeah. because they sacrificed a lot of members that were in very influential positions uh, for the goal of bringing him to this point. Well, that's the thing is that they are offering him congratulations, right? Like they are saying, great job. They're patting him on the back. It's not like one of those things where the unwitting participant uh, is an unwitting participant in the ritual. And then they've done the ritual and then they're like, you know, throwing him to the curb or to the side or, well, now we have to kill him because of what he knows. Like, these people are not um, unaware of the fact that, like, he just killed his wife and his kid, and they seem to think that he will be, uh, you know, uh, joining them in their revel around it on some level, um, which I, the first time I saw it, I thought it, like, I, I took it as deluded cult nonsense. But this time around, again, we're at 1044, so I'm done talking about Possessor. But the way those endings kind of mirror each other, and I, I have to assume that Kill List was an influence on Possessor, um, just because of how similar in, like, thematic plot they seem in some ways, um, that, like, it, it feels like maybe this was a release for him, that this cult 
has granted uh, for their own ritual, it's but also because <laughs> yeah, like a cleansing ritual, like to to make him free to be one of their members. Yeah, fully. Yeah, abs- absolutely. <coughs> I this time I read it particularly because uh, one of the goals of this month was to watch these movies. Uh, pick particular movies where we feel like we can really chew on the rituals and the belief system of the cults. So obviously the ones that we're going to get most into are um, Midsummer, Midsummer, and uh, one of the movies in our final um, episode of the month. Um, because, you know, usually in movies, in movies, the, the cult is sort of just spooky, creepy stuff. In this movie, I thought it was fascinating to discuss because we don't actually know in explicit detail what the cult's belief system is. We don't know if they're paganistic or satanic, if they're worshiping some sort of cosmic Lovecraftian deity. We don't actually know what they, they're they worshiping. All we know is that they're extremely well-connected. They're It may just be like a rich asshole go- like club that they're in. Yes. Like a messianic, like not necessarily a um, – Supernatural, because we don't see anything really supernatural happen. It it could very well be like a messianic lodge thing where it's just like power players that do these rituals for whatever reason. But I think the I think that there has to be something supernatural involved because of how openly plumly willing they are to sacrifice their their lives. Um, whereas like um, <laughs> like. Oh, I agree with you that it's likely like they believe in some pagan god or something like that. But I mean, the movie is very like there's not that moment where, oh, oh, shit, the supernatural force is real. All of this could just be a crazy belief system that they happen to adhere to, which um, is is, you know, look at the Crusades. Um, Like people have done. I mean, Masons believe in their god, George Mason. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um yeah uh i thought they were worshipped uh just bricks just any old bricks erotic sensation whenever they see like a building that's like just stitched together with masonry uh yeah well the real george mason was built from bricks and, and came to life oh sort of a wicker man situation but a brick, yeah a brick, which, a which is why man. which is again where the yeah why uh, why the rituals are so uh messianic yeah <laughs> This movie came out when conspiracy theories were more of a uh, fun, cool thing that we could talk about with our friends, um, and when back in the and back in the days when um, back when it was like, oh sure, Bill Clinton killed Vince Foster. Yeah, okay. yeah, obviously, obviously. When Alex Jones was just a kook on the radio in Texas, like back when you know John Ronson wrote a book where him and Alex Jones went to Bohemian Grove. Um, and saw like one of their rituals from the woods, um, but but, he, but like this movie is very much conjuring up um, Illuminati conspiracy theories, uh, the Satanic yeah. Panic, um, and specifically Bohemian Grove, which is sort of like an elite um, men's club in uh, I think Northern California, um, where they they put on weird plays, they have weird rituals, and they're incredibly connected. Like ex presidents have belonged to it, members of big banks. Like it's very, it very much helps 
um, crazy people um, connect their 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 conspiracy theories together. It, it's a nice nexus points for for conspiracy theories because also at Bohemian Grove, like they have weird sayings and weird rituals, and they uh, it sounds like they might have like essentially like what we see in this movie and what we see in the middle section of the empty man um where there's uh, people marching out in the woods far away from civilization holding torches um and then performing some sort of burning or, or bonfire ritual um and and saying these these strange phrases to each other and the and i think this movie is very interesting because like if it came out now it would be known as like a QAnon movie i think um, but it has the clean hands, I think, of having come out in, in the mid-2000s. Like, you were talking about that beforehand. Obviously, you've seen this movie more. Like, it I, – I don't know. Like, QAnon is tapping into a conspiracy theory and a movie trope about, like, the powerful people actually being part of a Illuminati. Like, really, they're just putting together the same old Illuminati bullshit. Right yeah, which has been like, going on for, you know, it, it, it's been going on for forever. forever. Sometimes it's anti-Semitic. Sometimes yeah, there's like, people yeah. – There's sometimes there are people who, like, no, lizard people are not a metaphor. They're not a metaphor for Jewish people. I mean, they're literal lizard people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of them happen to be Jewish. Is that David Icke in in Britain? Yeah. He's he's like famously there's a there's a <laughs> it's like done tons of interviews where like no by lizard person I mean actual reptilian lizard person. <laughs> Hillary Clinton's yeah. not Jewish and she's a lizard person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so I actually see this as less of that and more the Masonic Temple. Like they are rich or or, or even the Bohemian Grove or like, you know, George W. Bush in college laying in that weird grave or whatever else. Like it's this idea of <clears throat> not necessarily a global conglomerate, conglomerate of like uh puppet masters controlling the world, which is QAnon. Um, and more of a rich and powerful club that has gotten way out of way out of line. Yeah, way out of line. Way way out of line. Way out of line. They ought to speak to the yeah. warden about this. Yeah, like like it's you know, or you know, even like to, for comic book nerds, it's like a um, uh, 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 Hydra, right? Like. They're connected through the wazoo. Yeah, there's no defeating this thing. Yeah, there are enough powerful members of, like, political powerful members, like, business, you know, powerful people in the business world that are involved in it to keep it going and shaping and stuff like that. And they do have a lot of power and influence as a result of that. But it's not like, you know, if you're the president of a, of a country, you're part of this, like, super, like, you know – you know, Hillary Clinton and and Bill Gates aren't meeting with the Pope to kill babies, right? Like, <clears throat> which I think is more the Illuminati, like the 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 New World Order, the One World Government. This feels more of an extension of, or sorry, QAnon is more is an extension of that, where this is way more of the like. Uh, Hey, that fraternity became evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just I, I see this as um, hitting a little different in in twenty uh, twenty twenty one, where um, QAnon has just built. It's 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 not even QAnon is not even a specific conspiracy theory. It's like a, a skeleton, it's a catch all for yes, all. Yes, it's, it's 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 a structure to catch other conspiracy theories and funnel people into some specific political action that. Um, you know, at a certain time, people were, were trying to engineer. It's social engineering done by 
um, saying, hey, these crazy people that you're ignoring, uh, they're a voting block. They're a money block, notably. Like, these are people to con. Yeah. Um, this is this is very much like a... Um, this is very much like it's pulling off of conspiracy theory uh, sort of history in a way that, like, I think that uh, is, is you know, uh, still fascinating. Even in 2021, like, it, one of the one of the many, many ravages of QAnon, I'm not going to say it's even in the top 30, but one of the many ravages of QAnon is it, it just sometimes it makes me feel a little ickier enjoying stuff um, that is specifically catering in conspiracy theory stuff. I yeah I guess I get that and I'm just digesting oh. this stuff now because I haven't seen this movie since I knew what, I saw this movie like three I, or four I, I years think, ago and I what I I didn't yeah. know what QAnon QAnon wasn't a thing or I didn't know what it was three or four years ago yeah because you haven't been red pill Peter uh, we did that don't you dare episode that I think is still not released but it will be someday on the flat Earth documentary on uh, b- behind the curve and like that's a that's a measure of conspiracy theory that I still find fascinating and in some ways it actually speaks to like I find the documentary fascinating because it kind of speaks to like this is the like what what is the um, what is the bottom. <laughs> of conspiracy theories, right? Even the cons- the main conspiracy theorist, Mark, whatever his name, talks about flat earthers in that way, in that movie. He's like, you know, I believe, he's like, I- of course I believed we didn't land on the moon and I believed in the lizard people and all this stuff. And the one that was always like dismissed by me is the flat earth thing until I started to get into it. So I think like starting at that base, like, this is the one that even people who are conspiracy theory minded, like it takes a little bit to get them going. I find that, still relatively fascinating i still find some of like the the 90s era uh conspiracy stuff sort of like fascinating at least from like that kind of like fun way you feel like the people that go to alien conventions and go to ross yeah buying the gift shop like they have a purity of heart that QAnon people don't yeah i mean theoretically those people are like we're getting abducted and most of them are like they want good things for us I mean, I guess the government almost like confirmed UFO sightings this year, and everyone like, oh, well, that's not interesting. <laughs> they were like, yeah, well, they were like, they, they got like eighty percent of the way, and they're like, um, we've already seen the video. Unless you have new videos, we're not interested. Yeah, they're like, yeah, there's a lot going on. So, can you make it like? Oh yeah, there's aliens that exist. Great. I mean, right now we're we're trying to debunk uh, COVID conspiracies and global warming. Like we don't have time for aliens. Yeah, yeah. I actually think the aliens would respect us if we went. So you put on a light show. We got people yeah. dying of a virus when we have a vaccine yeah. for for no fucking reason. <laughs> we're oh, actually oh, just like, put on a light show. Oh, oh, you fucked with some guys in the navy. Cool. Yeah, it's no longer uh, the truth is out there. It's like, if the truth is out there, they have a lot of explaining to do because we needed help. Uh, They don't uh, adhere to the uh, moral ethical standard that we hold, which is that if you see something uh, unethical going on and you keep moving along, something you can easily stop, uh, then you're complicit in that. They... Aliens don't hold to that. They're like, huh. they, they should. Yeah. They, we need to make them signs. Like if you gleep something, glop something. Like, you know, I also like we're going to be covering a conspiracy movie in January that I won't spoil. Um, don't do it. Uh, but, well, I guess I can. Who cares? Uh, but like I haven't revisited the X-Files since like is the, if I watch the X-Files now, would I be like uh, grossed out by it or would I – but, you know, the reason why X-Files was such a good show is that, like, that 90s-era paranoia 
uh, when there was nothing big going on. And so everyone had to be like, I don't know, Vince Fonster and who really killed JFK and the moon landing is fake. Like, that's an era of conspiracy theories that I can get behind as opposed to like uh, literally influencing elections because people think that there's millions of babies disappearing that no one's reporting that are being like fed to Hillary Clinton in a blood sacrifice. It's like, oh, they're a voting block. Yeah, yeah. And I think just to redirect us back to like the movie itself, the thing that gets under my skin most is this is a movie that I think is actually really scary. I think indie yeah. horror sometimes has a problem with um, <laughs> they, they, they have the same problem that mainstream horror has, but from a flipped angle. So mainstream, so indie horror says, all right, we're not doing jump scares. We're not doing the sort of, you know, quick fifth every 15 minutes. The ghost jumps out and says, boo, we're not doing that shit uh, because we're going to tell a real story that happens to be scary. And we all go, thank you for not doing that. Um, and, then they have the same problem, which sometimes that means that, like, they're just very interesting stories with creepy supernatural or occult elements um, that don't actually have scares in it. But this movie gets under my skin in a way and it unnerves me in a way that, like, in, in many ways, actually, because <laughs> the when the first priest kill happens, they, they it's a silenced pistol shot at a distance. Um, it's over plastic. It's perfect, clean. And then the creepy thing is he turns around and he has this little smirk like, thank you. Like, he's kind of honored by yeah. it. And the fact that, like, people are just willing to – I used the term fish in a barrel earlier to refer, refer to the tunnel sequence, which is scary in, like, a very traditional way, right? Like <laughs> – being chased by masked people with knives, naked masked people with knives who want to cut your fucking belly open. Like, that's that's scary, scary in a traditional way. Um, but it, that's sort of unnerving thing where you're like, wait a minute. These guys are definitely the perpetrators here, but the power dynamics are no longer on our side, are they? Because this man is – this priest and this librarian is consent and the MP are consenting to be murdered. The MP holds out his arms uh, and, and smiles and welcomes the, 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 the bullet, the, the rifle shells from the G36 as they're like ripping through him. Like that's – that's creepy on on a level that I think indie horror movies don't usually strike at, which is that like it gives me a it gives me sort of like shivers in a unconscious way because in my mind, even though these guys have shotguns and pistols and training and an assault rifle, even with all of that, the power dynamics have flipped. Or the power dynamics are gradually, they, they were never on their side from the moment they signed that blood pact. From the moment they walked into the hotel lobby, and, and the, you know, they brought guns into the meeting. Um, that didn't matter. They shoot that guy, they'd be dead the next day, right? Like, that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't matter. Um, it's that the thing that gets under my skin is that the power dynamics shift in such a way that, like, you you were they were never in power at any point and you don't and you realize that more and more as the movie goes on yeah i and i again getting back to kind of the thing that one of the things i really like love about the movie is the way that the characters are not noting the 
the moments that that are are that something bigger is going on, right? Like there's so much of the like, oh, that's weird. He he, uh, you know, cut my hand for a blood pack for this one. Like everyone's surprised by that. They've gone on other missions. There's been no blood pact. Why did it happen this time? Like, why is the priest, like, just turning his head and saying thank you? Like, they're missing all of those signs because there's more obvious ones, especially once they meet the librarian. Because the librarian, you know, so they go on, like, a an unsanctioned mission to kill the person who shot those videos and stuff like that. And, like, they just don't have time to reckon with the obvious, like, why is your girlfriend outside in the field staring at me? Like, why are why are all these other – why is she hanging around my wife but doesn't seem to want to see uh, Gil? Like, all these things that should raise eyebrows at best get a momentarily, like, head shake that was weird – and then they, it never goes further than that. And so one of the, like, wonderful effects of this movie is it's not like – because there's two ways to do this type of movie. I mean, there's probably more than ways. For my for my straw man argument, I want to say there's two ways. Um, but, like, you can make it where there are hitmen that are doing this thing and then out of nowhere they stumble onto the cult and all of a sudden you start, like, you know, it, it does almost like little flashbacks of these things that, like, you didn't notice because we didn't call any attention to it. But, yep, in the background there was the cult thing and, and you know, the, the way that they signed it said service to the devil and, like, all these things. Instead, the signs have been in front of our face the whole time. Everyone watching the movie knows there's something more more sinister going on than, than the characters are noticing, the characters just never fucking notice it. And and it's not because of like they're dumb or they're stupid. It's just that they're 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 preoccupied with daily life and their jobs. And so they miss how overly apparent that something bigger and more nefarious is going on. Even when they quit, they don't quit because this whole thing has gotten too weird or they believe they're in danger. They quit because uh, they, when they kill the person who photographed those, those videos, the librarian's friend or whatever, they find enough money for them to go. This is more they say, this is more than the job was going to offer anyways. So let's just take this money and be done with it. Because uh, after seeing this, this video shit and realizing who we're killing, like, I've lost the taste for it. But it's not, like, a, it, it doesn't seem to me to be a measure of, like, impending doom or danger. It's more just a, like, yeah, these guys are all sick fucks and now we have more money than we needed, than we were planning to get anyways. Let's, let's walk away. So at no point, up until the point that they emerge out of the woods, well, almost uh, to the point, like, no, I'm actually going to say, up until the point they emerge out of the woods, because the person coming to their home and saying you need to fulfill the contract is actually, like, probably not that out of the realm of possibility for any uh, assassin-based handler when your assassins didn't finish their job that they agreed to. It's, but it's not till they emerge out of the woods that they go, oh, wait, what the fuck is going on here? Um, and I, I, I love that contrast between what the audience knows and what the characters could know if they were paying attention at all. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And some of the stuff is just chalked up to normal weirdness, right? Like, like the librarian, after he's been tortured, he says, does he know, does he know who you are? 
Yeah. Um, which is very telling, I think, towards the end tale. Or, you know, it's one of those things that, like, seems to reveal a lot, but actually maybe ask, raises more questions than it answers. Um, is that, like, Gil isn't important, really. Gil is just supposed to help him, you know, get the yeah. job done. Does he know who you are? Implies that, like, somehow wires have been crossed and the librarian thinks that Jay knows what he is and Jay has no fucking clue. And then the guy says, thank you again. Um, and so that's like, yeah, glad, glad it was you that got to kill. Yes. And, uh, it's, it's, he's growing more bloodthirsty, which is apparently good for the ritual. Like he's torturing a guy and he's losing his grip on everything. And then there's yeah. like also small moments like him being followed by uh, Fiona. Like she's at the hotel uh, standing out in the field, just staring at yeah. the room. And then she's also back at his house, just hanging yeah. with Shell. And just, like, yeah. drinking wine, just, like, being, like, girls. But, like, he doesn't real he doesn't, like, put together how ominous that is. Oh, and, and the doctor moment, too. The doctor, right? like, the doctor thing. I is totally so forgot weird. about, like, yeah, well, who shows up at the end, too. But, like, he, he goes to the doctor and the doctor's, like, not helping him at all with his infected hand. And it's just, like, basically giving him weird cultish advice about, like... Always remember this world is fleeting. <laughs> like except um, the present or whatever. The future is not yeah. here. Like except embrace the present, which is a very um that, that very much uh gets to a satanic uh concept of um thelema or the will. Um which is that your your willpower and your ability to affect the future is what matters. So embrace this thelemic concept and embrace this idea of like radical independence that that you should be chasing these sort of like personal pursuits you should be chasing them indefinitely that is sort of what the doctor is pitching to him like the doctor is like giving him like a pep talk for yeah. for continuing on his path well and also like he knows that's not the doctor they made an appointment with he's not even looking at his hand instead giving him like cryptic um again like uh advice or whatever you want to call it like um and he just is like all right well sure like if i went to the doctor for my hand and the person's like remember i'm not gonna look at your hand but you're fine and the seal opens with you that would make me re i would go home and be like what a weird doctor <laughs> can't wait till my normal doctor's back the one I made the appointment with that never showed up. Because um, he's, he's had such strange bedfellows, A. And then B, yeah. um, a thing that we haven't talked about at all is this movie was made uh, at the time of the Great Recession, which I think we forget about how the Great Recession affected everything because it was a global recession. Um, yeah. But it, he's motivated by he's, – he's so motivated by money to continue forward and – uh, the, f the the interesting thing about that is that like that's sort of an interesting recession uh, concept that like in times of desperate need um, and, and for him, you know, he has this like upper middle class house with a nice yeah. garden and a front yard and a nice car. Yeah, how many months can you go without working it, before it becomes a problem? And it's sort of this suburban malaise where like the mortgage needs to be paid, right? Like it doesn't matter – it doesn't matter if, you know, m many of your friends are out of work, like the mortgage still needs to get paid. And this this Great Recession paired up against um, this Illuminati group that's just like, 
the recession actually might be a great time for them. Maybe this this yeah. great draining of resources from normal people, even upper middle class people, is actually going right into their coffers. So like he's pushed forward, pushed forward, and it's in his best interest. And I think a lot of us, especially those of us with left leaning um, or fully left uh, ideals, um, can feel this where it's like, is my job ethical? I probably not. Does it pay the bills and is like my boss nice or like, you know? <laughs> do we have like creature comforts of a job? Like, does do my checks get get uh, arrive on time? Like, yeah, and that's like something that like in a in a recession state you kind of like many of us take like um, moral consequences and most specifically moral sacrifices um, to feed our family and continue carrying on. Yeah, and I mean that that is I mean that is the whole crux of the film and I know I've been hitting this point hard but it is just there's not another movie that like you know you normally have the options of like um the characters and the audience don't know what's going on the whole time the audience knows what's going on and then the characters slow like we're clued in because we see scenes of other people like talking about their machinations and we know that the characters like those machinations are going to catch up with them at some point um you know we know the ones where the characters figure out pretty quickly and like we're kind of clued in as they're clued in throughout the movie and stuff like that i don't think i've ever seen a movie where the characters are so distracted by life that they could know everything that we know but they miss it all because they're focused on the mortgage and uh and that kind of stuff yeah 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 i i i think that's like the secret power of this movie is that like He's distracted for good reason. This is a good paying job and he's got a family at home and he is directly motivated by the fact that like him and his wife fight about money. That is the leading, I I believe, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but that's the leading cause of divorce is like not being able to spend and, and budget money in the same sense. And he's dealing with PTSD. So he's looking for like any sort of relief right he's looking for any sort of just like stability and calm there's a moment early on when he says like he's he cites why he won't go back to work he's like oh i have back problems and she's like you don't have fucking back problems they're all in your head which is not really you know yeah it sounds like he's on prescription painkillers and he's also citing like old war injuries as like a reason he can't work and she's just like like she doesn't have the, the 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 language or the willingness to like be engage on that front. She's like, I we need to pay the bills. We need grocery bills. And then he goes shopping for groceries, and he comes back with ten bottles of wine. Um, yeah, which is a very like recognizable, I think, think thing for like people who are going through pain is that like, yeah, you're not spend even if you're going through financial problems, you're not spending money the way that like. You know, if, if you had a fucking analyst, they would do it like because you're not a robot. That's how people work is they're like, well, this yeah. will give me some sort of comfort, even if it's not something like as unhealthy as drinking as much as Gil and Jay do because they're clearly alcoholics. Um, you, you know, even if it's not that bad, it's just anything gives you comfort and you're like, oh, yeah, if I spend if I that's that's how people get in credit card debt in this country is they're like, this will give me some comfort, even though like I can't pay this off. Yeah, here's the thing. When you're depressed and sad or just feeling like you're in a rut, like whatever else, and you want to relieve that depression or sadness or, uh, you know, uh, ennui or whatever else, 
Uh, anything that you would need to do to get out of that costs money. And so if you're – if those things are – you know, impact, if the reason that you're feeling in that way is due to money, you are completely fucked because the only way to kind of get pleasure is to spend money on something that gives you pleasure or whatever else. But that is like, you know, the alcoholic chasing his hangover with a with the hair of the dog. But what else you like you you need to break out of it some way. Austerity usually does not break people out of malaise or depression. Yeah. Just because we live in a capitalist world that where everything costs money. Like even if you're like, hey, I've been eating shit food. And I feel like garbage and my goal is to, you know, uh, start exercising and um, and eat better and that's going to make me feel better. All those things cost more money than you're spending now. So, if you've been feeling like shit because of money problems, bad news. You need running shoes so that your feet don't get all fucked up. You need, you know, uh, uh, healthier food costs more money than garbage food. Like, all these things are actually like – it's it's just like, you know, it's um, – there's so many better articles and, and you know essays and probably entire books around like how how expensive it is to be impoverished and stuff like that and how impossible the system makes it like you being able to get out of it and like these people aren't impoverished but they have you know responsibilities that they they can't meet and that impacts every moment of their their familial interactions their work interactions and stuff like that so much so that they miss that they're being targeted for like uh, a cultic ritual in in pretty clear terms and the wife knows the job there's a skype call late in the movie where like okay so during the dinner party they lie to fiona and they say they're salesmen um the wife who uh, served in the swedish military and that's presumably how she met uh jay the wife knows the job and so her patience with him is even lower because she's like, I'm military. Like I, I understand kind of like what you're going through, but like, I need, even if you're gone for three months, like I just need, I need you to yeah. be, I need you to fulfill your role. You, to um, be a provider, yeah. And it's crazy how like he is, <laughs> it, it, what makes this movie fascinating to me is how his PTSD manifests itself. Like, yeah, it's in the drinking, but that's sort of like a low level background thing. Um, it's, it's in moments like where he's like telling bedtime stories and he's telling a bedtime story to his son and it's a war story about him in a convoy and one of the trucks blows up. Um, as opposed to, you know, talking about, you know, fantasy, a fantasy setting yeah. or talking about just fucking anything. A uh, boy who goes on a big adventure. Um, <laughs> and, his, and there's a moment really early on in one of the montages where his wife is speaking Swedish on the phone. She's like, I think probably calling, crying, crying and talking to one of her parents, presumably. Um, and it's, he. I thought it was possibly Gil, but. As we find out later, but yeah, yeah, but he, he, she, it's possible, but she, he doesn't speak. It still gets to my point, which he doesn't speak her native language. Um, he like hears her and he looks confused, and then he knows it's just going to frustrate him listening to her be upset on this phone call. So he just goes to the garage to smoke a cigarette. Like yeah. it's very clear to me that he does not speak her language, which is also a sign of being a disengaged husband. Like. <laughs> Uh, you know, you don't have to be fluent in Spanish if your wife is Mexican or Spanish or Argentinian, but like you 
try. You try to pick up language, sometimes just to talk to their parents in their native tongue. Like you you give it the shot. Like that that was that's like stuff I caught this time that like just really speaks to his how how disengaged he is as a parent, but they're like kind of trapped by their mortgage and trapped by their child and probably trapped by debt. That yeah. they're um they're just kind of in this thing. And to jump back to what you were talking about um, at the beginning, the cult has offered him a path out. Uh, they force him down that path. They do not allow him to exit it. It's very much like a force feeding him food. But they they offer him a path out. Like you know, you can't. I've liberated you from this family. I've liberated you from this this uh, you know suburban mediocrity. I've liberated you from money problems because now yeah. you're one of us. And given the yeah. level of ample sacrifice it took to get him there, I imagine he's like very one of them. Like, I imagine he well, has the, a yeah, that's, position. That, that's the thing. It almost feels like because, like, they're, you know, the, the librarian is talking to him like he knows what's happening, right? Like, that he's in on it. Not in a, um, like, you almost think part of, like, the, the mystery of this movie that doesn't, you know, doesn't really exist the second time around, but, like, you almost wonder if they're confused and Gil's in on, in on it. Right? Like, Gil's part of, like, bringing him in and I'm going to offer my war buddy and I'm going to free him of all his misery. Like that actually in some way would make a little bit of sense, but he's not. And it almost like it does feel like maybe that someone got their wires crossed like they were supposed to tell him at some point and then everyone forgot. It's like, you know, the fucking like, uh, <laughs> you know, go, the ghost uh, skit and I think you should leave like – Somewhere around, we just got our wires crossed. <laughs> You're saying you'll take money to kill these people. I'm saying kill your wife and your son, and you're getting mad. <laughs> like, um, you know, that's what it feels like. A little, like, maybe, like, because everyone seems to assume that he kind of knows what's going on, and he doesn't. But I agree with you, like, his his the 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 weird interpretation of this that I never considered the first time is that all of his stresses and burdens that were so large that it caused him to miss the cultish things going on around him have been removed from his life, and all his problems have been solved. He's he's no longer suffering under any of that stuff, and he doesn't even have any. But but also on the flip side. Gil was his it was a source of strength and comfort and, and, and measurement for him. And Gil was purposefully sacrificed in the final act, um, both from the movie, but also by the cult um, as a as him letting go of everything, his family, yeah. his job, his position, his house is all the all the, the good stuff, the bullshit and everything in between. Um, and, and that's uh, it's also sort of mirrors the ending of another movie we're going to cover this month. I think I talked a, a lot about the how the cult closes in his life and, and what the cult does for him and, and sort of brings him into the fold. So it being Spooktober, uh, sort of like what we did um, with the invitation, I kind of want to end on just talking about all the great horror shit this movie does. Yeah. Um, so I talked about it getting under my skin and such, but the tunnel sequence is one of the best like horror action sequences I've seen since the descent and the rousing sequence where all of a sudden like it's it's safety off full open fire for just a few minutes. It's very quick because that's how 
that's how gunfire exchanges are. It's it's often very like it's over before you even know it's over. Um, and the the way that they use natural lighting and shallow focus in the tunnel to just make it feel like okay yes the the people coming down the tunnel have knives and it's like fish in a barrel for for uh gill um but his partner has abandoned him to try and find their way out um and they their exit i don't know if this was the way they came in or maybe this was their planned exit but their exit had been bricked up and they have to kick it down and uh, all of these people that are being murdered, including Gil, we'll find out soon. All of these people are just like, it's they're accelerated versions of sacrifices. These are all people willing to give their lives and throw themselves as like, as meat for the gristle. And um, the, the, there's something, we didn't talk about this as, as a folk horror movie very much, but um, the fact that they don't talk very much about it as a satanic or more modern concept, I think kind of does speak to, I mean, we, we said, is it a satanic cult? Is it a pagan cult? Is it a, um, is it just like, uh, Aaron said, like a brotherhood, you know, maybe like Bohemian Grove or the Masons that just kind of got off the rails. Um, there's a, another option, which is that this is a, yeah. Are you, are you familiar with the, the concept of dares? Peter, sometimes they escalate. Oh, yeah. And then 300 years down the road, you're like making a, making a dude stab his son in the back, pretending it's a hunchback monster he has to kill. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's also very uh, Abrahamic, right? Like the, the idea yeah. of uh, God asking you to, to kill your child <laughs> and then God killing his own child um, as, a, as a sacrifice. Um, but That guy loves killing kids. He's like, gotcha. <laughs> wasn't actually going to do it. Psych! But, I'm going to do it, but though. But stay tuned. I'm, I'm definitely. Do it. To be clear, I'm definitely going to do it. Who's going to stop it's, me? It, he's, Super God? God is kind of like the guy who jokes about having a threesome, you know, with friends early on to try to, like, really make it happen later. He's, like, he's making some good, like, uh, son-killing jokes. Oh, yeah. He's the wouldn't it be weird if we kissed guy. Yeah, yeah, he is. Wouldn't it be weird if you took your son out and killed him? Uh, psych! <laughs> and then, like, Jesus was on the cross being like, please say psych. Please, please say, say psych, psych. Please say psych. Um, I, I think that this actually, uh, this actually, the sequence in the tunnel speaks to, in a very symbolic way, it speaks to folk horror uh, in a way that uh, I love, which is uh, his shotgun, he runs out of shells or it jams or something, and uh, then he gets stabbed. And it kind of speaks as like a failure of technology against the old ways. Like um, they, the old ways is they threw enough men with knives and knives Tony reloading uh, at, at Gil that Gil had to be subsumed and had to be swallowed up in this, this sacrifice. And in that, it's kind of like a perfect folk horror lesson that like it doesn't matter if you've got it doesn't matter if you've got automatic weapons um, the the um the old ways can subsume you and the that that sequence is just it's so scary and so fright like frightening without being jump scary yeah that whole sequence is amazing it just you're right it happens so fast again it does feel it remind me a little bit of again a little bit of a spoiler moment uh empty man too where it's like oh look at that called off in the distance oh oh they're coming this way oh they're coming to see me <laughs> you're oh, coming over here to see me 
Come and say hi to me. <laughs> and another horror thing I want to talk about, because I talked about the general sort of tone and how it gets under my skin. And there's lots of great horror images like, you know, figures standing out in the field and, and you know, uh, f- creepy figures standing with torchlight. Like there's got a lot of classic folk horror kind of stuff. But there's two instances of foreshadowing. One, it becomes very obvious once you see it, which is um, Jay buys some foam swords uh, and is just playing with his kids and his wife in like a very happy moment right before he leaves, probably around like the 20 something minute mark, which is when you're watching the movie the first time, you're like, you're just like, oh, well, yeah, he got swords because he's a soldier. And that's, you know, he's passing that sort of idea onto his kids that like weapons or, or something you, you should play around with. Or, you know, this is just yeah. how he understands, like, oh, we're going to play war. That's what we're going to do, like with his kid. There's another piece of foreshadowing that I didn't catch. I've seen this movie four or five times, maybe. Actually, sorry. I've seen this movie like six times, actually, because I've shown it to so many people. There's another piece of foreshadowing that I absolutely love. The, the score in this movie. Do you introduce it by saying it like, hey, you know how sometimes you guys talk during the, the movie? I need you all to shut the fuck up for the next 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't even open a can of Coke. Yeah, this is definitely a movie you watch with, like, one or two other people. This is not a uh, Re- Return of the Living Dead or Slither. Oh, you're saying Kill Us, not a great party movie? Yeah, it's not part. This is certainly... I've talked a lot about party movies on this show. This is certainly not it. Yeah. Um, But there's a piece of foreshadowing that I also want to highlight, which is music. That throughout the movie... Um, we hear choirs and string music and this very ominous sort of low drums and whistle tone. Um, and late in the movie, Jay is out in the woods with Gil and they're approaching the, you know, Bohemian Grove stand in and he, and Jay's like, shut up, shut up. And the non-diegetic music of these drums and whistles is now diegetic. Yeah. Jay is recognizing that these whistles and these drums are part of this ritual. And these sacrifices, the three that turns into four, arguably five, arguably 50, if you count all the people that got killed along the way, um, the, the all these people that were that were sacrificed, this this movie has all been sort of an origin story for a messianic uh, uh, evil, dark figure of war. This this figure of violence and retribution that's willing to be a sacrificial executor to fulfill the unknown will of this cult. So yeah, like Aaron, what what do you got as like final thoughts, like or spooky shit that you wanted to highlight? I mean, it is it is spooked over. Not to sound like a fucking it's always sunny in Philadelphia meme, but I do think like. This, this this movie, like, hits something that is very hard to do, which is uh, pulling the rug out from under you in an extremely effective way and letting you to wrestle with the implications while credits play, right? So, like, those kind of twist or surprise endings, which this movie does have, are sometimes a crutch, sometimes eye-rolling. Sometimes when it requires you to piece together a bunch of disparate information that doesn't hold up well – um uh doesn't work but when it does work and it really gut punches you that's why people chase that idea of a twist ending 
because when they're effective, there's it's like nothing else in media, right? Um, that that thing of like, okay, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. Oh, and this is what happened, and cut. You are supposed to theoretically, in the ideal, I guess, viewing situation, leave the theater and have to drive home with the last understanding as this guy you just spent 95 minutes with just stabbed his wife and his son to death, uh, not realizing that's what was occurring. Uh, Just being so done with these cultists and the killing that he's like, fine, you want me to kill this hunchback? Kill the hunchback. And then, like, it doesn't give the characters on screen a chance to wrestle with it. And it kind of makes you, the audience person, wrestle with it. Like, that was, um, you know, like a very famous twist ending, like a sixth sense, right? You find out that he's been dead the whole time and the movie's over. And so you have to leave the theater. Like, actually, like, Sixth Sense, I don't want to get into my feelings on that movie. I actually think that movie is all twist and it doesn't work uh, as much the second time or like subsequent viewings because it's really based on you pulling the rug out from under you in this extremely effective way that holds up from a twist perspective and then everyone leaves the theater going like wait holy shit but what about this what about this and and it kind of gets you going and this is a movie that's just like kind of like you know for lack of a better term kind of like all right yeah this assassin movie kind of sad some good horror moments it just kind of like kicks you in the nut pulls your underwear over your head and says, all right, well, bye then. <laughs> like it's, and that, that is, that is the kind of like twist ending that I think like people chase. I think, you know, Fight Club and Sixth Sense are obvious examples, but when people say it has a great twist ending, they're chasing that feeling of not knowing what to expect and wanting to just talk about what happened with your friends after the movie like you did in in those types of movies. And I think this is one of the rare examples that succeeds 100% completely. Like, And, and again, it's not an empty twist. It's not a twist for a sake of a twist. But it, it makes you as an audience member wrestle with the implications of something that like – you are you did you very likely did not see coming um but still feels at a piece with everything you've seen before absolutely absolutely yeah it's um i'm really glad that you're into the as into this movie as i am um because for a 95 minute movie it's a it's a heavy hitter um it's a movie that i could definitely understand someone uh not being into uh, I mean, I mean, you should have been too surprised. I like this movie. No, 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 no. I mean, I know, I knew, I, I knew you were gonna like it, but I didn't know you'd be so pumped about doing it on the show. So, thank you for giving me space to rant and yourself some space to rant because this was this was fun. Um, what do we have left, Aaron? Have we announced the big Spooktober special yet? No, we we haven't. I think it's time. I don't like to just do it on the final week because, you know, uh, there's actually a lot, there's not that much space because of the way that we release our Halloween episode. There's usually like three or four days between and then we give space between our first November to make sure that, you know, our Halloween special comes out like the day before Halloween. Um, so that's not going to give us much time. So we'll, we can announce it here. So next week we're wrapping up with uh, one of our favorite guests, our producer, uh, Carrie Nelson, who's joining us to talk about Midsummer. Which is something that we got into a long conversation about like a year and a half ago. And we're like, we're going to do Midsummer. You're going to be on the show uh, so that we could um, – because I think we had been pushing it very hard on her and just being like, we got to hear your thoughts on Midsummer, And then we had like one of those, you know, thousand uh, reply uh, text message exchange 
about it, and uh, I think we're all pretty excited for for revisiting it. Also, as a, as a little surprise, we are going to do the director's cut, which I don't think any of us have seen um, since it came out, or we haven't seen it at all. Um, uh, so uh, we, I don't know how. I don't think it's like different. I don't think we're seeing like a different uh, interpretation of the movie. I think we're just, from what I understand, getting more scenes and more context. But if you are interested in seeing the director's cut to follow along with us, it is a very easy process to watch it. Nothing convoluted or complicated or frustrating at all. Um, <laughs> um, but essentially, you have two options. Uh, you can either buy the movie from Apple Plus as of right now in August it's uh it's 9.99 which is not too bad or you can get the special edition uh 4K that has it on there which cost uh, uh 40 million dollars um so those are your two options hopefully you have either access to apple uh tv or apple plus or have 40 million dollars and then you'll be able to easily watch it with us yeah, so we our, our our Spooktober Halloween special, which we can announce here, is uh, probably our most thematically linked Halloween special that we've done outside of just doing the Evil Dead TV show after the Evil Dead movies. Because a lot of times we just make them their own special epi, uh, and this is that, and it's a chance for us to talk about one of our favorite horror movies, but it still maintains a thematic link to the month, and we're doing a triple app. Uh, about Nick Cage versus cults. So we're doing two preamble movies, which is the Wicker Man remake. Um, just to really, really raise the ire of everyone who's wondering why we didn't do the Wicker Man this month. Uh, we are just not the one you expected based on our theme. Uh, well, I promise we'll do it later. It's yeah, a Peter. Yeah. It's a movie Peter and I both love. Yeah, we're actually. Yeah, we're actually. Sometime in 2022, I really instead of doing a Lovecraft month, I'd love to do a folk horror month and have that be yeah. the anchor for it. We could also do it for musical May five. Still a lot. Technically, technically a musical. It is <laughs> strangely enough technically a musical. Yep. Uh, and the boob. I haven't seen it in 10 years, that fucking song. <laughs> Still in my head. <laughs> the Maypole song or whatever. Um, and uh, so we're doing that. We're doing Drive Angry, a movie I've never seen. I actually haven't seen the Wicker Man um, remake either, although it's it's been on my list for uh, Hungover Saturday for a long time, based on all the memes about it. Uh, but our main, our kind of showcase there is a movie that was on both of Peter and mine's best of 2019 list and that is of course uh mandy uh one of the one of the most amazing horror movies the last 10 years so yeah that's our uh that's our spooktober special which should be uh a lot of highs a lot of potential lows um and probably a lot of talking about uh amber heard cage versus cults um, and we're gonna C versus C Music Factory. It might be a nine-hour episode, but I'm really hoping. I'm really hoping that we will watch uh, one bad movie, one okay movie, and then uh, one great movie, and uh, be able to come to a more uh, uh, full and well-rounded understanding of Cage at his various states in his career. The phoning it in yep. Cage. The the. Uh, Cage knowing he's in something cornball and giving a cornball performance and Cage fully fucking committed to something and it's showing on screen. I'm excited for that one. And with that, we will wish you a good 
uh, uh, cult ritual with your fam, with the whole fam. Yeah, yeah. If you guys are out there doing your cult rituals, be safe. Make sure you at least wear a cup. Um, oh, yeah, wear a cup. A sports bra, maybe. If you're not used to running around in the woods without a bra, it might be kind of painful, um, depending on, on, on your body. Um, so just make sure that, like, you're taking care of you before you run around naked in the woods and then kill Michael Smiley. Before you sacrifice yourself via hanging, get some you time in there. Yeah, just because you're caring for the Dark Lord doesn't mean you can't care for yourself, too. Yeah, your own Dark Lord. Good night. Good night. Your buckle? Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. <laughs>